Hello, welcome back to Return on Character Investments podcast. Actually, it's not Return on Character Pat, uh, Investments, Return on Character podcast with me, Dan Cooper, your host. Um, I'm thrilled to be having a chance to sit down and talk with the gentleman, uh, Representative Tom Campbell, today. Thank you for joining us, uh, Tom. I, um, I, I want to provide a little bit of an introduction uh, and some background on, on Tom Campbell, but he's one of these individuals that um, has been uh, one of the icons of my career in life, uh, principally because my mentor, Joe Ritchie, um, held him up with extraordinary high regard uh, all his life. Uh, Tom was a, a lawyer, started off in Chicago, uh, he went on to become a, um, a five-term Republican congressman in the U.S. Congress representing California. Uh, he then went on to uh, – I'm just going to list some things here, listeners, to give you a perspective, but I'm going to butcher it. Just know that it's probably ten times better than what it sounds. But he went on to uh, be the the – the dean of the Haas School of Business at Berkeley. Uh, he was the CFO of the state of California for this, for President or for uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger when he was governor. Uh, he became the dean of the um, um, the Chapin uh, Law School. In between those times, he ran against Dianne Feinstein for the U.S. Senate, uh, and he probably did a lot of other things that all of us would uh, gladly trade to have on our resume that is just too frankly long to go into at this point. But the most important thing about Tom Campbell is this man is an extraordinary man of character. And um, I've admired him for years. I've often told him, I said, if he ever runs for president, uh, I'll be the first man to sign up and help you uh, with your campaign. Uh, it's 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 a great honor to have you with us. I'm looking forward to having some discussions about some of the critical challenges that we face both in the market and politics today. Tom Campbell, thank you for being with me today. Dan, you're overly gracious in your introduction. I deeply appreciate it. And may I say that I, can, I admire you and all you've done with our mutual friend, Joe Ritchie. Uh, God rest his soul. Uh, and you have given uh, your career to the advancement of values, virtue value, uh, as opposed to um, personal rate of return. And, uh, and that's admirable. So your career shows that you are living the principle. It was, uh, it's, it's just, it's really fun to have you, have you on. Um, one, one of the, my poignant moments that I remember whenever we first met was when Joe and I were trying to overthrow the Taliban pre 9-11 and you were a US, U.S. sitting congressman and you sat, you looked at us and said in one meeting, well, we should get an act of Congress in support of the King's return. Well, yeah, sure, Tom. And you went over to your computer, typed up a letter inviting every, you know, a few uh, co-authors, didn't proofread it, didn't do it, didn't, didn't even have anyone look at it, sent it off. And before we knew it, in a few months, we had, we had an act of Congress in support of the return of the king in Afghanistan. Anyway, that's a Tom Campbell story. 
Um, Tom, could you start start us off with where did you grow up and how did you become the man you are? And uh, why do you care about important things in society and life? Uh, where did that come from? Uh, thank you for those lovely words. I grew up in the city of Chicago, right downtown. Um, I was blessed with uh, loving parents and a grandmother who taught me to read and to write and to do uh, arithmetic uh, before I got to grade school. So God bless her memory. Her birthday was yesterday, so I always remember my grandmother. Uh, and it shows a value of intergenerational education that I think is missing in the large part of American society. Uh, she had come to America from Ireland, uh, and uh, her uh, parents uh, had been denied the right to go to school uh, during the one of the, the, the British uh, English crackdowns. Uh, so uh, I remember that with great fondness. I have uh, seven brothers and sisters, so I'm the youngest of eight children. Uh, we uh, got, learned to get along. And uh, given, given that the girls came first in our family, five older sisters, then three brothers, I learned to, to listen. And I, I also learned to respect uh, women. It was a huge part of, of, uh, of growing up. So uh, I went to St. Ignatius High School in the city of Chicago. And uh, before that, to uh, Sacred Heart uh, grade school. But thanks to my grandmother, I started in the second grade. I was able to pass out of the first grades, bless her. Uh, and uh, then after uh, St. Ignatius, I went to the University of Chicago and uh, had the great opportunity to uh, study there in the economics department. My faculty advisor was Milton Friedman, and I was very fortunate to get a scholarship to go on for a PhD at the University of Chicago. Um, my parents... Uh, what was your dissertation at, at uh, the University of Sh Chicago on? It was the first quantitative measurement of uh, discrimination against women in the federal government. Uh, so the federal government kept data, and it kept sufficient amount of data to estimate what wages should be, uh, depending on what's called the human capital equation, namely experience, education, previous uh, uh, locations of work, breaks in service, veterans' preference points, all of those important. And at the end of it, what was not accounted for by those was statistically significantly different between men and women. Uh, and that was a strong indicator of discrimination against women in the federal government. Uh, I, my, my database um, came up to uh, 1972. So in those years, it was still permitted to discriminate. There were categories of uh, federal employment that were reserved for women and some reserved for men. So that and having five older sisters and my, my mother and my grandmother uh, being uh, taking the opportunity the University of Chicago gave me to study any subject for my dissertation, I chose to do something that might advance the, the uh, economic fairness to women. Did that end up having any kind of impact? Uh, did, was it referenced? Yes, yes, in a strange way. Uh, so I was uh, the very, very lowest uh, of possible political appointees in the administration of President Reagan. Um, very, very low level in the Department of Justice. And the uh, domestic policy advisor to President Reagan was Elizabeth Dole. And uh, she later, of course, became Secretary of Labor, Secretary of Transportation. She was Secretary of, of uh, uh, excuse me, she was Director of the uh, Domestic Policy Staff. And 
she sent out a note to all cabinet officers that she wanted to create a task force on eliminating barriers to women's advancement in the federal government. Well, it was my dissertation. It was just perfect. Uh, the attorney general uh, said that he was not able to attend himself, and the deputy attorney general for whom I work said that he uh, was not able to attend, but asked if I would, and I'd be delighted. So that's, I went over to the White House and I was the only man in the room. Uh, every other cabinet officer had sent a woman. And, uh, oh, that would have been uh, 28. You were 28 going into the, in, into the White House because of a dissertation that you wrote in Chicago on uh, equal pay for women. That, that's right. And, and I want to give praise to Elizabeth Dole, who then got the president to issue an executive order that ended segregation of categories by, by gender in the, in the government and created a task force continuing within each cabinet office to ensure that women had fair opportunity for advancement. Do you remember what it felt like to walk into the White House for the first time? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yes. 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 That had happened under President Jimmy Carter. Uh, and uh, he was a, and is, uh, I'm happy to say, a, a fine man, a man of great personal character. We can perhaps disagree on um, how effective he was as a president, but there's no doubt that the man was, and he is a good man. Uh, and yes, I, I remember walking into the White House for the first time. Uh, and I say, uh, I was touched beyond uh, what, what I, I thought I would be. Uh, and um, to this to this day, I uh, I remember that moment. I, I I wasn't walking into the White House on my merit. I was walking in the the White House on others' merits. And uh, I just to this day, I'll never forget you know some of the times that I've had there, and it's it's quite impactful. Do you think that that was part of what kind of seeded for you um, the interest of considering eventually a run for Congress? Oh, it was much sooner than that, Dan. Uh, so I was uh, uh, in third grade when President John F. Kennedy was elected and uh, at a Catholic uh, grade school. Uh, the first Catholic president was a huge event, and uh, it opened me up to, well, why not run for, for office? That's just something that was being held up as a good thing to do, that he could advance so much good in the world. Uh, and uh, so uh, that, that, that's when I formed the, the plan. My father was a federal judge, and so we uh, had some access, uh, well, a lot of access growing up to discussions of government that was uh, kitchen table uh, uh, conversation. So you went on after uh, your time in Washington, D.C. when you were 28. Uh, is that when you made the transition back to private, pra private pa legal practice? Excuse me. Yes. Uh, so... Uh, I was in legal practice, actually, until I was appointed a White House fellow by President Jimmy Carter. And uh, I went to Washington in 1980, uh, expecting to serve as a year uh, under President Jimmy Carter. And instead, President Ronald Reagan won that very November. I'd started in September. So found myself in, the, in a White House dance that was uh, rapidly emptying out. Uh, I had... Uh, the smallest office possible in the uh, executive office building, and uh, when I when I started, and uh, when I finished, when President Reagan came in, uh, 
had to leave the White House uh, because I had been appointing President Carter. Uh, and But before then, I was able to move to higher and bigger offices and because uh, no one was was allocating offices. So if the office was open, I moved into it. Uh, and uh, I think it, because the executive office building was originally the, the first uh, defense uh, or Pentagon, if you will. I think I actually at one point had the office of the Secretary of Navy. <laughs> That's the absolute lowest level possible in the White House. So uh, that's, that's uh, uh, I, when I was done with being a White House fellow, uh, I, the Reagan administration came in and they were gracious to offer me a position in the Justice Department uh, where I told you I got to meet Elizabeth Toll and, and others. And then uh, I was offered the directorship of the Bureau of Competition at the Federal Trade Commission. And I served there until 1983. And it was then that I uh, left to go to Stanford and uh, joined the law faculty at Stanford. Okay, okay. So then you went into to, to teaching. When was it that you decided to run for Congress? Interestingly, I thought I would give up politics because uh, I was going to California where I had no friends, no family. Well, I had friends, I had professors at, Ch at, at Stanford, um, but they were all new. And uh, I had, I'd, when, we, when we were done with the uh, Federal Trade Commission, uh, my wife and I were talking about going back to Chicago, and she asked if maybe we could go to California instead. And since she had come to Chicago at my request, uh, she's a native Washingtonian from the capital, um, I thought it was only fair I go to California because that's what she wanted. And I thought that was it. I would have no political future in, in uh, California. Uh, I thought I might have had a political future in Illinois. Well, maybe the lesson here is always do what your wife wants. Uh, because she, she was right. I became a congressman five years after I had moved to California. Wow. And that's, uh, Joe Ritchie was one of your early supporters? Oh, yes. I'd, I'd met Joe when I was practicing law in the city of Chicago. So before I went back to Washington as a White House fellow, and uh, he had, uh, I, uh, we had, we had uh, a mutual friend in Tom Decker, who was doing federal defender work, uh, defending uh, indigent uh, criminal defendants, and I had volunteered to help defend indigent criminal defendants. And one of them was uh, quite a character whom Joe Ritchie had come to know about, and Joe had had dealings with Tom Decker as well. So it was Tom Decker who introduced me to Joe Ritchie, and it was uh, a ma magnet uh, and, and iron, magnet and iron filing. It is a real, real strong. A real strong personal sense that this was a good man and that I, I was blessed to, to know him from this from the very start, Dan. Uh, so that was when it happened. And then I get, kept in touch all the years. I saw Joe when I was in Washington. He would come from time to time. Then when I became a professor at Stanford, he would come out. We would meet there. And then when I was elected to Congress, I met you. That was uh, uh, another way of re reaffirming our relationship. After Congress, you tell it. I mean, we're going to go back and we're going to talk some a little bit about the some some ideas um, and reflections on, say, the way the market operates today, Wall Street, the way companies uh, uh, on Wall Street are managed from a quarterly to quarterly 
perspective versus a more long-term orientation, which I hope to discuss, and then a little bit about character and politics. But let's, if we, if you wouldn't mind, let's continue kind of your track, because I think your track is one of the more extraordinary American stories, you know, during your period. And I'd love for the listeners to get a chance to, to, to kind of get us to where you are today. Well, okay. The one thing we've not mentioned so far, but it's very critical, is 1978, August 25, I was married to Suzanne. <laughs> we were married in St. Matthew's Cathedral in downtown Washington. Uh, she uh, was a, uh, just getting her master's degree at George Washington University, and I had just finished being a law clerk. Uh, we uh, got you married. You were a law clerk for Supreme Court Justice, was that right? Yes, yes, Justice Byron White. Mm -hmm. Before him, for Judge George McKinnon of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, sir. Uh, Suzanne uh, was a, is a specialist in international relations. She had just come back from Spain, where she had lived for over a year. Uh, so fluent in Spanish and pretty good in Catalan, too. She was in Barcelona. Uh, and she was doing her, her master's thesis on the origins of Spanish communism. Uh, and I was our, a law clerk, so we would meet at the Library of Congress up on Capitol Hill. And um, we got married in August. I was in the midst of volunteering to, uh, for, camp, for Governor Jim Thompson's campaign in Illinois. So okay. I had thought then that I'd have a political future in Illinois. Uh, Governor Thompson uh, won re-election, and Suzanne and I then took our delayed honeymoon uh, for uh, two and a half months. Uh, we spent all our savings and maxed out all our credit cards uh, going around the world. So we got really? a Pan American, old Pan American, no longer exists, and the uh, flight left Chicago going west, and we came back to Chicago coming from the east. Uh, and, uh, as a result, we stored up memories for a lifetime. And uh, the, the, the fact that we started financially in the whole as a result was, was trivial compared with the benefit of getting to know each other and share these experiences. To this day, we make reference places we went on that trip that we didn't ever again. But later in life, uh, Suzanne then developed fluency in Russian. She studied hard, I should say, to get fluent in Russian. And uh, long before I went to Berkeley, uh, she was the director of Berkeley's program to start a business school in Russia. Oh, wow. Um, executive director. So international was a really big part of, of our, of our uh, a marriage and has been uh, ever since. Uh, so, in brief, uh, <laughs> that's special. We should have her on next. Uh, I did definitely <laughs> would be bored. particularly her insight now on what's happening in Russia. For it's sure, very sad. She has so many friends. She she uh, met Vladimir Putin when he was deputy mayor of uh, Leningrad. Uh, she uh, graduated from. She got her language certificate from Leningrad State University. And uh, she was trying to get a building uh, in St. Petersburg. It was not yet St. Petersburg. And the deputy mayor was in charge of allocating buildings. And so she went to him and negotiated to try to get a building that uh, would eventually be the business school uh, or, a, uh, uh, or, 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 or what would be as good as, as possible in St. Petersburg. Uh, and he was trying to foist her off on a property that wasn't all that desirable and, she held her ground, so eventually they succeeded, and Suzanne was the director of the program for 14 years. And well, the tagline there is, Suzanne out-negotiated out Putin. 
Oh, yeah, that's good. Yeah, uh, if she were ever to run for office, I'd say, yeah. That's right. I think uh, we should. Elect her. She's still up to period. Putin <laughs> came to the opening of the school, uh, by the way. But oh, then, wow. He it's was crazy, uh, isn't it? He was the, the boss. Okay, so, so you, you guys get married. Okay, break the, let's continue the, the arc of, of, of your life. Okay, so we got married. I worked in the Thompson campaign. Uh, he was elected. I then re-elected. I then went to Winston and Strong, the law firm in Chicago, where I, I met uh, Tom Decker, who introduced me to Joe Ritchie. I was appointed a White House fellow in the administration of President Jimmy Carter, which brought me back to Washington. Uh, when President Reagan came into office, I had to leave the White House, but I was appointed to the Justice Department. That led me to be available for the head of the Federal Trade Commission, uh, who appointed me to the head of the Bureau of Competition. The Federal Trade Commission has uh, antitrust authority and consumer protection authority. The Bureau of Competition runs the antitrust arm. And uh, with the new administration, and this will fit into uh, a little bit of my background in Chicago, the new, the, the, uh, the new chairman was not a lawyer. He was the first non-lawyer chair of the FTC in history. And he wanted to have a economist running the Bureau of Competition so that antitrust cases were brought on solid economic principles. And Dan, I think the only reason I got the job was I was the only PhD economist who was also a lawyer clear in the new, the new Reagan administration in Washington at the time. So I, I became director. And, uh, and then in 1983, showing how bad my political judgment was, Dan, I said, well, the economy is pretty down. Uh, and uh, President Reagan probably won't be reelected. So I'll, I'll get my resume out on the street before anybody else does. And that led to me receiving an appointment at Stanford Law School. Uh, and uh, so from Stanford, then I ran for Congress in 1988, was elected. I served uh, two terms. I ran for uh, senator in 1992 when Senator Alan Cranston stepped down. Uh, and there was an open seat. I lost the Republican primary in a three-way race. The winner was Bruce Hershenson. I came in second by a point and a half behind him. And then the third was Sonny Bono. Uh, and the uh, winner of the Democratic primary was Barbara Boxer, then a congresswoman. She was my colleague in the House. I knew her well. And she went on to beat Bruce Hershenson. So I lost. Uh, that meant I had to leave the House. I went back to teaching at Stanford. And uh, the state senator resigned. Uh, the very next year. Well, I'd handed a lot of name ID. I had just run statewide and I had been two terms then as a congressman. So the, uh, I ran for state Senate and was elected. Uh, and state Senate allowed me to stay as a professor. I would teach in the springs in the, in the autumn and could go up to Sacramento in the spring. Uh, that uh, was what I did for two years and enjoyed it. State legislature gave me uh, a great value and I hope I did some value in return to people in California. But it was a bit unusual because most people go the opposite direction. They go from the state legislature to Congress. In the case, I had been in Congress for two terms, and that was in the state Senate. The state Senate then uh, had uh, 40 senators, and uh, still does, 40 senators, uh, which meant I was actually representing more people than I did in Congress because we had 52 members of Congress for the state of California. The... Uh, the congressman then, uh, President uh, uh, Reagan uh, had left. Uh, Newt Gingrich was running, was was uh, bringing in the 
the, the contract with America. Uh, and uh, uh, it, the house changed in 1992. Uh, and uh, the, the incumbent Democratic congressman from my neighboring district, actually part of my, my, my former district, Resigned. You know, his name was Norm Mineta. He passed away just last year. He had been um, congressman for many years, and he said he had waited to be the chair of the transportation committee, and hear that the Republicans had taken over for the first time in forty years, and uh, he didn't want to stay in the minority. So we had another vacancy in midterm. I ran for that and was sent back to Congress. So that's how it happened. That I had two years in the minority. Two years in the two terms in the minority in Congress, two two years in the state Senate in the minority, and then three terms in the majority in the uh, in the uh, in the U.S. House, uh, and then uh, that led me to running uh, for Senate once more. This time, I won the Republican nomination, uh, but lost in the general election to Senator Feinstein, and uh, I went back to Stanford and the. Uh, the University of California, Berkeley, was looking for a new dean for their business school. And uh, I applied and was appointed to that position. So I served there. In the midst, Governor Schwarzenegger was looking for a director of finance. You were kind enough to describe that earlier. And uh, he appointed me director of finance for California. So we took a leave of absence to help the state of California in that capacity and help Governor Schwarzenegger, I hope. Uh, I then returned to Berkeley because uh, I did not want to lose my tenure or position and finished being dean. Uh, and then I ran for Senate uh, one last time and uh, lost in the Republican primary. But during that uh, race, I needed to get better known in Southern California. So I came down to Orange. I taught uh, at uh, Chapman University, where my good friend and fellow PhD student uh, under, Governor, under uh, Milton Friedman uh, was president of the university, a gentleman named Jim Doty. And he asked if I would be willing to stay uh, if uh, I didn't get elected Senate. And I said, uh, I'd certainly be open to it. And then they offered me the deanship of the law school. And now, and, and this is where you are today. I am. I, I finished my term as dean, and uh, I teach half the year in the economics department. I have an appointment as professor of economics as well, and half the year in, in the law school. Tom, I'm, I, I would like to, to get your thoughts. Um, you know, Rock Investments, the firm I represent, um, invests in CEOs and leaders that show character habits, uh, evidence of character habits around integrity, responsibility, forgiveness, and compassion in the way they lead their organizations. Uh, this, these characteristics, these behavioral characteristics, have been correlated to actual outperformance um, in, in Harvard studies and a lot of other uh, research has been conducted. Um, I was, I'd be very interested to hear your thoughts as it relates to your, your historical association and kind of growing up in the Milton Friedman orientation of capitalism, you know, shareholder supremacy and, the, and, and how, that, um, how that played out in in just the everyday life of America and consequently corporate America and how you see it maybe changing, uh, reflections on what was good and what was maybe just didn't work. Um, I would just love to hear your perspective because you sounds like you were an actual student of, of Friedman at one point. 
have you are you would you still hold to his his tenets uh, to 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 this day? And um, anyway, just would love to hear your thoughts. And forgive me, but in my previous answer, I inadvertently omitted Africa. So let me just say, if you wanted some point to pursue that, when I was in Congress, I was on the Africa Subcommittee uh, for the uh, for the House International Relations and was able to travel to uh, over 20 countries in sub-Saharan Africa. So, and that was a life-changing experience after leaving Congress. I then went back and volunteered to teach in Africa. Seven, seven separate occasions in Rwanda, in Eritrea, and in Ghana, um, most recently in Ghana. And I've kept up that connection. I'm preparing right now to teach, although this time it'll be remote, to uh, Ashesi University in Barakusa, Ghana, uh, starting next spring. So Suzanne went with me on a number of those occasions, taught fundraising and taught English. Uh, our, so, uh, that's a part, part of my life. Now, your, to your question, the, the, uh, being Milton Friedman's student did not mean I had to agree with him. Uh, he was exceptionally open. Uh, he did not require adherence uh, to his points of view as well. One of the very brightest humans I've ever met. Uh, and he would routinely at the University of Chicago hold open floor uh, where any students would come and debate him on anything. And some of the students from the SDS, the Students for Democratic Society, the left, would love to come and debate him. And he would be open to it and very polite and very successful <laughs> in his debating. On the question of corporate social responsibility, Milton's view was that corporations existed to advance the values, uh, the, excuse me, the, the, the monetary value of the, of the shareholders, and that charity should be engaged in by the, chair, the shareholders themselves with their own funds. If that's what they wanted to do, they could use dividends or their capital gains, and that it was wrong for the uh, corporations to advance uh, charitable goals uh, if they were contradictory, and sometimes they were not. In his view, uh, uh, if they were contradictory to the uh, economic rate of return of the shareholders, there were two criticisms I, I had from the start of, of that. First of all, Milton was also a great uh, a defender of personal liberty and individual choice. So if a company advertised and made it public that these are the kinds of charitable enterprises in which we're engaged, then an investor who bought it, the stock of that company uh, would know what she or he was getting into. So it seems to me that there was no contradiction in advancing shareholder value because the shareholder, with her eyes open or his eyes wide open, uh, made this choice. I will buy this stock knowing that it will from time to time pay above the minimum wage that they have to. It will from time to time sacrifice the cheapest way of producing a good in order to have a positive environmental effect. So my first rebuttal to to uh, to Milton Friedman was, uh, shareholders are free to choose. And that indeed was the title of his book, Free to Choose, uh, one of his many books. Uh, and the other argument is that there are economies of, of scale and economies of scope. Some companies, for example, The Gap, uh, whose uh, founders, uh, Doris and Don Fisher, were on the board of the Haas School, uh, has expertise in, in uh, sourcing clothing. Uh, so if you are interested in conditions of third world, uh, what pejoratively might be called sweatshop operations, uh, you can give to an organization that 
devotes its energy to that in general. Or you can support the GAAP as it specifically attempted to improve workers' conditions. So that's an economy of scale and economy of scope. Here's, a, here's the company dealing with just this issue. Uh, it's going to be far more efficient. They'll know where the differences can be made than simply giving to charity. So if I'm a shareholder in the gap, A, I've chosen to buy that stock. And B, uh, uh, yes, I get a dividend. And yes, I could invest that, for example, in World Vision, which does a wonderful job in my view or other charities around the world. But here's a company that knows exactly how to help with uh, low-wage uh, workers in third world. So those are my two rebuttals to, to, uh, to Milton. Uh, he and I disagreed uh, uh, you know, a couple of times. Uh, he was always polite and always uh, encouraging. But uh, most of the time, if you disagreed with Milton Friedman, you were wrong. But I didn't think I was wrong here. Were you one of those students that raised his hands in the class and, and, and kind of put the counterpoint to him? Well, I, I might have, except that he was my faculty advisor. Uh, and so I went to see him on getting advice and approving my courses and so forth. But he had a heart attack the year he was supposed to teach microeconomics. So I, re I, I used his textbook, uh, but the professor who came in instead was a fine professor, but not Milton Friedman. Well, a lot of uh, a, a, a lot of Wall Street values have been kind of inspired by the Filter, the, the Milton Friedman orientation around uh, justifying uh, almost anything in the name of shareholder value. Uh, GE and Jack Welch is a great example of of the extreme tale of that uh, manifesting it. Do you think that that's still a strong? orientation or do you feel like those uh that those ideas um are slipping uh more towards a a broader orientation of of true value and really what really brings value to the shareholders meaning uh connections and and attention made towards other things besides just absolute returns do you have enough, any any opinions or thoughts on that sure in, in, in the world we live today and and on my best reference is when I was dean at the business school, companies were very much migrating towards the triple bottom line, toward not sole man, profit maximization as the sole uh, objective. They were driven there by shareholders uh, as well as by employees. Uh, and it was in large part, in my opinion, a quite sincere uh, movement by by the corporate CEOs. There were some driven by politics as well, to be candid. So maybe the CEO's heart was not motivated, but the CEO's brain was that uh, it would be politically wise not to be vulnerable to uh, the charge that you were uh, running uh, horrible labor conditions or polluting or showing no uh, respect for, for uh, the environment, social, cultural environment where you were, where you were impacting. But... Well, whether that was the motive for a large number, it was uh, it was not the motive, I think, for most. And uh, so, yes. Our, now, the question remains, Milton was right to ask, where do you make the trade-off? And uh, is it legitimate to tell your shareholders there'll be no dividend this year because we're going to pay our workers more? That would be a hypothetical. So we're going to all the dividends and give them to the workers instead. And the answer I would say is, did you tell the shareholders that sufficiently in advance so that they could buy or sell their shares uh, knowing that, uh, and that you were going to do that, let's say, 10, 
five years from now, 10 may be too long, but five years from now, we're going to move to this model. Now go ahead and invest in us if you want. If you did that, yes, perfectly okay. But Milton might be the better argument if you did that as a surprise. Somebody invested in a company and was expecting a flow of dividends and was suddenly deprived. That's, and that makes sense. It's fair. Um, you know, transparency and communication is critical. And if you, uh, even if you're, if you're not sharing good information transparently, you can still catch people off guard. Um, well, Tom, the other, the other topic that I wanted to, to uh, take advantage of you of is, is, is just the notion of character in politics. Um, could you could you tell me, is it possible to have good character and be a sitting congressional or a Senate or presidential leader, in your opinion? Yes, it's, it's difficult, though. Why? You have to be prepared to lose. And that's, that's a very um, critical element which doesn't get much attention. We focus so much on winning in our society. You have to be prepared to lose. Uh, that's to say that if you are a person who values particular principles, there will be an opportunity or lost. There will be a shortcut that you did not take that somebody else might exploit. Uh, I have personal experience in my own campaign I'll share with you and also with others. But here's, here's one I don't think I've told you before. I was running for Senate in 1992. The civil rights bill was on the floor of the House. Uh, I had been on the Judiciary Committee and I had worked on the civil rights bill. Uh, and this reversed uh, three Supreme Court opinions. Uh, and the bill would, I, I think, correctly reestablish the opportunity for a victim of racial or gender discrimination uh, to, to rectify that discrimination. And I told you about my dissertation. I told you about my mm -hmm. long concern about particularly discrimination against women. So um, President uh, George H.W. Bush uh, uh, threatened to veto, and they were doing a whip count as to whether the veto would be overridden or not. And I said I would, over, I would vote to override. I was in the midst of a Senate campaign uh, president H. George H. W. Bush was the incumbent Republican president, and I got summoned to the White House. And I spoke with the uh, the White House Counsel, who was there and who had a uh, very high-level member of his uh, of President Bush's uh, White House staff from California present. And uh, the White House Counsel asked me why I was not going to stand with President George H. W. Bush, who was calling the civil rights bill, a quota bill, a bill that would lead to quotas. And I said, well, here's why. And I went into describing the, the three Supreme Court cases. And he interrupted me about, oh, 20 seconds in. And he said, I'll never forget. Oh, look, Tom, I'm sure you know a lot more about the law on this than I, but that's not the point. The point is President George H.W. Bush has said, this is a quota bill. We cannot have our candidate for Senate in California disagreeing with him. Do you understand? And I said, yes, I understand what you're saying. And uh, I was polite, of course. And the other person who was in the room also emphasized that she was very knowledgeable about California and that this would cost uh, me in, this, in, the, in the primary. It was a very close primary, as I intimated before. And uh, I was favored to win just slightly in the polls. Uh, I went back to uh, the Congress that day uh, 
and I voted to uh, override President George H.W. Bush's uh, veto. And I got a call from a senator who is the chair of the Republican Senate Committee who said, well, you just lost the Republican primary. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, President Bush, uh, Vice President uh, uh, Dan Quayle, came out to California, did a fundraiser for Sonny Bono, uh, and uh, Sonny Bono took more votes than the margin between me and Bruce Hershenson in a three-way race. It was, it was made clear to me that that was the consequence. And to this day, Dan, I'm, I'm so happy because imagine, and, and, and I know I can be wrong on the substance of the issue. That's not it. The question is, what did I believe? And, and, and what I believed was that this was a good law that would help people who were victims of discrimination. And uh, what President Bush was doing in vetoing it was playing to a political uh, purpose. Uh, so I would be a very different man, a very unhappy man. If I, even if I had the title United States Senator, if I knew that was the price, I could, I mean, it's a really very clear example uh, where it happened that quickly. The end of the story is somewhat uh, uh, ironic. Uh, President Bush eventually signed the bill. President George H.W. Bush eventually signed the bill. And the reason was that in the interim, uh, David Duke had won the Republican primary to be governor of Louisiana. David Duke was grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. And uh, President Bush needed to establish some very solid civil rights credentials, so he, he switched. And I remember talking to Henry Hyde, who was chair, uh, he, he was a uh, 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 ranking member, not, not chair, or number two, I think, on the Republican side. I said, so why did you switch? Because he switched, too. And he said, David Duke. <laughs> In other words, uh, it was opportunistic on, on, all, on all parts. So I didn't win that uh, primary. That was the best chance I had to to winning for U.S. Senate, and uh, I'm so happy. <laughs> you imagine how I'd be other. Did you know many other congressional leaders or colleagues that you think um, would behave similarly during your time in Congress? I saw Bob Livingston act that act that way. Um, Bob was the uh, chairman then of the House Appropriations Committee. Newt Gingrich was the speaker, and he had been. Uh, gotten into some difficulty uh, over the fact that he had told Republicans to vote for the budget and don't read it. It was his phrase, don't read it, just vote for it. He had worked it out with President Clinton. And it turned out that the budget included some uh, appropriations for uh, military aircraft to be built in New, New, New Cambridge's district uh, that we did not know about when he was urging us to vote for it. And that led to a challenge that do we want New Cambridge to be our, our speaker, the Republican leader anymore. Um, Bob Livingston uh, uh, was challenging him. Uh, the same time, the House was engaged in the impeachment of President uh, Bill Clinton. Uh, President Clinton had admitted to lying under oath. There, there's no other way of putting it. He would lie under oath in a federal criminal grand jury. Um, the uh, investigation involved uh, whether there had been uh, a uh, quid pro quo to uh, uh, regarding investments in Whitewater uh, when he was governor, and then the movement further to uh, by Ken Starr as to whether President Clinton had urged testimony and then Monica Lewinsky matter uh, that was false, whether he had induced false testimony. And uh, 
he did not tell the truth under oath. Uh, and uh, for that reason, he was impeached by the House, and I voted to impeach him. But before that, that happened, Bob Livingston was uh, uh, leading, uh, among the leaders of the impeachment uh, uh, effort. The Democratic side had said, oh, it's all about uh, an extramarital affair, that the Republicans were just prudish, and they were trying to punish President Clinton for uh, having an affair with Monica Lewinsky, as opposed to the truth, which was uh, I and others who voted to impeach were concerned about lying under oath by the President of the United States. Well, Bob um, was summoned to the White House by President Clinton and asked if he couldn't uh, see things differently and not vote to impeach, but instead just vote to censure. Uh, Bob uh, said he would go with the evidence, and the evidence was strong. That indeed, President Clinton had admitted he had not told the truth under oath. And uh, President uh, Clinton said, well, that's regrettable. Um, as Bob was, and I heard this from Bob himself, so uh, as he's driving back to the, to the Capitol from the White House, that news breaks that Bob Livingston has been cheating on his wife, and uh, there's evidence of uh, witnesses come forward. And hence, Bob Livingston is a hypocrite because he's impeaching President Clinton for cheating on Hillary Clinton, and here he is cheating on his own wife. Well, I repeat, that was just the way President Clinton chose to describe it. It was impeachment because he lied on the roads, not because he was having an affair. Nevertheless, that's how it played. So the very next day, Bob Livingston rises to speak on the House floor on the motion to impeach. And uh, he begins by saying that uh, our, it's a very serious opinion, a very serious issue. And Barney Frank, who was on the floor of the House, I remember, uh, yelled, in, uh, resign. Uh, and Bob Livingston was saying, I urge President Clinton to save us from this vote resign uh, and uh, allow Al Gore to be president, then we won't have this this issue. Uh, it's not political because we'll still have a Democratic president. And and uh, Barney Frank yelled out, you resign, you resign, uh, because the news had broken. It was the front page of the Washington Post that, that very morning uh, that uh, uh, Bob had had this out, outside affair. And uh, this is the point I'm getting to uh, from uh, remarkable courage and integrity. Uh, despite the failing, which uh, we all have failings, and I don't make nothing of it. Um, he said, and therefore I will resign. And you could have heard a pin drop. Bob Livingston announced his resignation from the House of Representatives. He said, in order to be clear after this vote, I, I will step down. Uh, so he put his whole career on the line. And he did it so that the vote on impeachment could be clarifying as to not involving what the president was saying it was, but rather a very straightforward and important issue of, of integrity. Uh, did the president lie under oath? So there's a profile in courage by Bob Livingston, who paid a high price. Indeed, had he told President Clinton that he would not uh, vote to impeach, I have no doubt, and I think Bob has no doubt, that this uh, allegation never would have come to light. And do you think he may have been the Speaker of the House, eventually? Oh, yes. Sure. Denny Hastert became Speaker of the House. And uh, Denny Hastert was from uh, the WHIP organization, uh, but had nothing like the support that Bob Livingston did. Chairman of the Appropriations Committee, Dan, has friends everywhere because 
that means money for your district. I mean, we don't like to, I don't want to harp on character, but to me, character is not defined as making mistakes. It's really how you deal with them when you do, because uh, we all make mistakes, you know, uh, and that is a great profile of, of a story of, of, of exactly that. Um, pivoting a little bit to today, um, how do you feel about character representation in Congress today? Uh, is it how how have you dealt with that? How do you uh, how do you feel about the way people are behaving today compared to say the the, the days when you were in Congress? It's become much worse. It's very very polarized. It's uh, so much a focus on means uh, on, on, on end, excuse me, instead of means. So Democrats uh, presently, they've admitted it, they're supporting election deniers in the Republican primaries in order to get them defeated in November because they'd be easier to defeat. The Democratic um, Congressional Committee has admitted that they have put money into Republican primaries uh, in order to elect, to nominate somebody whom they consider unacceptable. Uh, and on the, on the Republican side, the adherence to President Trump, um, despite overwhelming evidence that the election was won legitimately by President Biden, uh, because if you don't say that, President uh, Trump will um, endorse your opponent in your primary. Uh, and so what I suspect, I haven't the individual conversations now that I did when I was a member of Congress, but what I suspect, Dan, is the oldest and perhaps most virulent of all self-deceptions is I'll do this little evil in order to do good. Uh, once I get elected, oh, country will be better off. My district will be better off. So in order to get elected, I might have to do take this, this, this step. I might have to say President Trump was cheated out of the election, even though I don't believe that he was on the Republican side or the Democratic side. I might have to support this this uh, otherwise unacceptable candidate uh, because he or she will be easier to beat. It's awful. It's, it's, I'm, I look across the ranks and see very few. I, I, I'll single, single out Senator Mitt Romney. He, he deserves credit. He's a man of faith. And uh, he's showing that he uh, evaluated the evidence and against his own political interests, voted to impeach President Trump on two occasions. Indeed, on the first occasion, he was the only Republican senator to convict. I said to impeach. He was actually going to convict to remove him from office. But that's a very sparse example. Uh, and, and, and all for what? Uh, for what? So that you can be one out of 435? Well, yes, good. I'm glad that you won out of 435. And maybe I did a tiny, tiny bit of good when I was one out of 435. But it's not, it's not worth it. And if you're able to sell, if you're willing to sell your principle on that, then you're, 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 why should anyone have confidence in you on the thousand and one decisions that are made in private? That's another phrase for character, the decisions that you make when no one's looking. Uh, and there are a thousand decisions for every one that gets public, uh, whether you go on a bill to sponsor it or not, whether you uh, move a particular argument in committee discussion or not. Um, so it's become much worse in my observation. And largely it's because of the polarization of the, of the two major parties 
And the result being that they cannot, a, a candidate or an incumbent cannot afford to be primaried uh, because if you lose the primary, um, you can't make it to the finals. Uh, the primary becoming the most important election down that November. Out of 435 House seats, I don't think, I could be wrong, but I think Cook reports never got above 50 who were contested. So 435, 385 were not contested. Uh, and as a result, the primary becomes important. And as a result, party loyalty and orthodoxy has, has become even more and more dominant. I, I, listeners, I, excuse us for common, consistently referencing Joe Ritchie, but he's a big part of my life, so he's always going to be a part of my thinking. But he always used to tell me that the, the author Tolkien, uh, one, of, one of his themes in his writings was that evil tended to eventually overplay its hand. Um, and, and the notion that, uh, I'm not pointing a finger on any one individual, but the, the tendency to uh, not prioritize character civility, uh, is there hope? You know, is there, is there hope uh, for a way to uh, reverse course in any way around uh, the trajectory and the trend that we see leading us in Washington today? Do you have any thoughts on that? And, and, and of course, speaking to your your new political uh, party uh, might be a part of that answer. I'd like to be optimistic. I cannot be optimistic. A structural change is needed because where we are now, the primaries decide everything and party orthodoxy drives the Democratic primary candidates to the left and the Republican candidates to the right. The uh, concept of a liberal Republican is gone. Concept of a Scoop Jackson Democrat is gone. Uh, the overlap is almost zero. So structural reform, and you're kind to mention the common sense party. Let me just say there are three states where the primary for everything but president, so governor, senator, Congress, House, Assembly, uh, state Senate, are decided by a runoff instead of a primary. So California has this, Alaska, Louisiana, and Maine, I have variants of it, but California is uh, the area where we can actually change the structure. And here's, here's, here's why. If you have top two, then they can be top two from the same party who are running in November. One of them is going to be supported by the party. In the case in California, we have 80 assembly races. 14 of them are Democrat versus Democrat because of this top two. And, and as a result, the Common Sense Party, which I'm attempting to form, um, can endorse and support the more, the higher character, the more centrist, the person willing to compromise, though the person might be a D and the other person is a D, or in the smaller number, I think there's two R versus R races. The reason why the support of a party is critical is because of the campaign finance laws. A party can then can, can give uh, through donations of an individual, 10 times as much to a candidate as an independent would get on her or his own. So with a party in California, which I'm trying to create, we will be able to go to these 14. It's too late now because the election is um, so soon, but we can go to those 14 and say, well, maybe in a dozen of them, maybe 10 of them, we have a clear 
choice. One candidate's the regular support of the party, and the other has got some independent thoughts, some characters, and uh, and then become the vehicle so that the 10 to 1 advantage is equalized. Um, and eventually, someday, uh, we would have our own candidates who might make it to the top two. Out of 80 assembly districts, there may be five where an independent could actually make it to the finals. Uh, so, yes, structurally, there are steps that can be taken. And uh, I'm about, I'm trying to do it. We need 73,000 registrations in California to become an official party. We have just over 30,000. So uh, I'm devoting all of my free time to, to that very effort, Dan. And, and, and the hope is that we will have an example that other states can follow. Yes, yes. Now, structurally, you gave us a great overview of how impacts. Talk to us a little bit what the um, Common Sense Party is. Like, what does it hold up as rep, uh, uh, promoting the kind of thinking that your or values or uh, the, filling the, if you were if you're describing it as a market uh, opportunity, what market opportunity do you see the party filling uh, in today's political landscape? A political reform. Uh, and I can amplify this uh, a bit and then suggest viewers or listeners may want to go to cacommonsense.org, cacommonsense.org. So a political reform. For example, in California, we have a great rule in the Constitution that bills must be put out in public and not passed until a set number of days thereafter so the public can notice of it. Uh, and this is violated, Dan, every legislative session because a bill which has gone through all the timelines, it's before committee, the right number of days, it's out in public before the right number of days, in the last day is amended on the floor of the Assembly or the State Senate, and it's called gut and replace. So the bill number remains the same, hence the constitutional requirement has been satisfied, but it's a totally different bill, which has not been before the people for 10 days, which has not been before the committee. Uh, that's allowed. Uh, another is the so-called trailer bill that we pass the budget and this bill is necessary to implement the budget. So that doesn't have to. Well, it's not necessary. To, it, it's simply tacked along in order to get out from the rules. So that's 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 the first example. Uh, the second example is initiatives. California is blessed by the power of initiative where the citizens can attempt to change the law on their own. But the summary that the voters oftentimes don't go beyond, just the summary of the initiative is, is drafted by a political officer. The political officer happens to be the attorney general, which is a political post in the state of California. And uh, as a result, you've got the most remarkable uh, uh, mischaracterizations, one which was a, a tax a proposal to uh, lower the gas tax. The attorney general threatened to characterize it as, I'm not making this up, a, 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 a law to reduce the pensions for widows and widowers of officers killed in the line of duty. And, he, and, and what you're saying is, is that he or she has the power to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you can take it to court, and the court has on a, and courts have on occasion thrown it out, but there's a large degree of deference to what the attorney general writes. So uh, I propose, and it's on the Common Sense website, who is the most neutral officer you can think in state government? I, I wonder if you'd guess, but, but the one that popped in my mind is the state librarian. You know, who's the librarian? So let's have the librarian write the summary 
uh, and uh, instead of the the uh, the political officers do it. Uh, a third re recommendation of, of mine, uh, and all of these have to await the eventual approval of the of the party, is if you can't vote for me, you can't you can't contribute to me. Just pause for a minute. Suppose we take that rule. So no money from out of state, no money from companies, no money from unions, no money from PACs, no money from anybody who can't vote for me. Now, the, the pie or the field from which you can draw your campaign contributions is fair for both uh, or, or all the candidates. And, uh, and, uh, and, and, and then we, we also have uh, limits on how much any individual can spend. Supreme Court has, in 1974, said uh, spending money is speech. Well, I think that's wrong. And I have a little bit of background in constitutional law. And I know that up until 1974, limits on how much money was spent were, were upheld as constitutional. So at the very least, if you can't vote for me, don't contribute to me. And then the, the issue of the, the wealthy candidate who's got hers, his own money, uh, uh, who can win because they just spend their own money, that should be curbed by going back to what the rule was before 1974. So th this is the space, and there's a dozen other suggestions, but this is the space we're focusing on, Dan, which is sensible reforms. It, it's not partisan. It's, and, and also, as, as I've explained before, we should judge on character. We should not judge on political affiliation. So right in there, and we're the only party that says this, right in our, in our proposed charter, it says, we will support candidates of other parties. Uh, in my example before, be supporting the Democrat in a D versus T uh, November race. We'll support the more independent Democrat. So that's the, those are some of the examples of what our party stands for. Well, in that last example, in the sense that it, see, it sounds like in California, um, a common sense party uh, creation allows for me to find a candidate that might have some Democratic values and Republican values in the way they look at the world and the way they would represent me. And I would be able to vote for them and try to get them in a position of, of influence within my local or state government. Whereas now, I can't do that. There is, there is, I'm bifurcated to I, the two tails of the bell curve. There's no option for me. That's very well put. And let me um, give a concrete example. Um, if you are a Democrat, you will not get the support of the teachers union and the CTA union is so powerful you won't win the Democratic primary unless you oppose charter schools. Uh, and uh, the charter school offers the opportunity for the parents of children who, who, who do, parents who don't have a lot of money to get a better school maybe than they otherwise would. It's still a public school. It's a charter school. It's run by the by the state, but without the rules, the same sort of rules. And here's here's another example. Uh, let's pay more te for teachers who teach in the more difficult environments, where the where the students are not uh, as as likely to succeed unless the teacher is excellent. So, uh, proposal for merit pay will never be approved by the by the teachers union, the CTA union. They want uh, seniority. And if you're a Republican and you propose increasing salaries for members of the teachers union, which is what you'd be doing, those who are willing to teach in a more difficult setting, uh, you'd never get the Republican nomination. The Republican 
hit pieces would come out saying that uh, you support giving more money to the union that has never supported a Republican in its history or, or seldom if ever. Uh, so there's a, 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 the, the right answer, it seems to me, is pay more for teachers who are willing to undertake the more difficult task and eliminate the cap on charter schools. But you won't win the Republican nomination if you support the first, and you won't win the Democratic nomination if you support the second. Uh, but suppose you're an independent-minded person who does make it to the top two, and we can help you. We can say that's exactly the sort of person who's willing to choose from A and B, column A and column. Uh, but uh, right now, Dan, it's if you if you don't agree a hundred percent with the orthodoxy of the major party, uh, you will not get out uh, of the election alive. Well, and that's that's the heart of the common sense party and the notion and the idea is that it really gives birth for um, uh, new ideas to come and be put into a position of power and influence within government. Uh, whereas now uh, we are all stuck to our corners of our uh, of our boxing ring, and you're forced to choose your quarter, and that discourages people from even wanting to be in a quarter. So they don't be, you know, they they just why why get involved? Um, and so to me, the the um, the common sense party provides us kind of a a bright light in the midst of a very contentious environment. And uh, I, I'm, as I've said, I'm 100% ready to be a, a card-carrying uh, uh, common sense member. Uh, Reading, California, I don't think has a chapter. I'm ready to open it. And, uh, and like I said when we started off, Tom, when you let me know you're going to run for president, you know, I'm going to carry your bag, okay? Uh, I, I, I don't think it's too late. I still think there's a chance, uh, and I'll do everything I can, which isn't much, uh, to to uh, help uh, help you win because I believe in you deeply, and I'm grateful for who you are and what you've represented in in your lifetime, and I thank you for continuing to do what you do every day, Tom. Well, deep thanks for that, Dan. I will not be running for president. Uh, but there's no higher compliment an American can give to another American than to say they support them. Well, I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to keep <laughs> trying to push you over onto that well, uh, line of consideration. When, let me know when you run, and I'm honored that you're willing to be part of this effort, at least in California. <laughs> well, yeah, I'll be a part of it here with you, and then uh, and then I'll start another party that just says Tom Campbell for president, and we'll just start <laughs> getting our our signatures, and you will be forced into the position. Ultimately, <laughs> that's the way great leaders should be, to, you know, decided not 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 be the self, biggest self promoter, but the one that doesn't want to be president are perfect for the people. They're really are the ones that should be. So we'll end it with that. Thank you very much, Tom, for coming on. And, and again, uh, give everybody uh, the link for the Common Sense Party. Tell, tell them where they can learn more. CACommonSense.org. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Tom. Immense thanks to you, Dan, for this and for all that you've done.